me that he gave me you made a boo boo instead, which, well, that's history, right? Well, who spent the money to get these backup singers and to do all that? Uh, actually, High above twenty nine nineteen East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. Without further ado, I want to bring in a cat who has been expanding music, uh, vocabulary in music sonically for quite some time. He continues to do it in his blues breakers fashion, but he always realizes that the blues come from the streets, the street music of African people, and he has always sought them out in his career and has inspired younger cats like myself who were born well after his career started. John Mayall, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. I see. So I'm a cat now, am I? You are a cat, brother man. <laughs> you give, as twice you've said "cat" in the in the introductory speech there. Well, I mean, after <laughs> anyway, after, when you woodshed with 500 cats, after a while, you start to call them the cats. You yeah, know, I think so. Hey, John. You know, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about a conceptual thing. You know, for a long time, you you actually did not use a trap set in your bands and i wanted you to talk about uh not only why you did that um but but how it opens space within the music that you play well, you, you mean a, you mean a set list a trap set drum trap set i don't know what that I don't know what that is okay so you would have a band with a bass player harmonica a couple of guitars and no drum set can you explain why not having well, a, oh, a, a drum kit yeah, a trap set. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what you what you're talking about here. You know, when we record, it's it's with the band that I have. So, you know, it, hey brother, I'm going back to when you first came over here and you're putting together a band with a quartet and there's no drums. And I want you to talk about the space within the music that it creates without having a drum set. <laughs> 
Oh, you're talking about 1970 now with the USA Union album and... Yeah, but I mean, you, there were times in England you didn't use a trap set either, and I just want you to listen. Always today in our formulaic society that we're living in, you always uh-huh. you always have a trap set, you always have a drum set, but you didn't. And I just want you to talk about your philosophy of how not having a drum set can open space within the music. Well, you know, it was a very long time ago at the time when I had a you know the standard lineup of guitar, bass, and and drums along with my stuff, you know, with Mick Taylor's days in 1968, 69. I mean, we're going back that far. So, you know, I just wanted a change of pace. And, uh, you know, people like Jimmy Jufri and uh, several other jazz uh, artists have been experimenting with not using drums or using a different instrumentation. So, so that's what I did. Jimmy Jufri, you know, Jimmy... It, it lasted. It didn't last very long, maybe a couple of years, but uh, you know, it was it was an experiment, and people uh, took to it. Can you talk about uh, your your view of experimentation uh, and uh, and how and how maybe the first real chance you took uh, in a musical setting? Because I, I I mean, you've been a huge inspirational force for me. More when you came stateside, just because of the cats that you tracked down. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of them, but I just wanted you to talk about experimentation. Uh, maybe one of the earliest times that you experimented with something and it really worked out. Well, I, you know, I never kind of think of it in those terms. You know, I, I make music and choose the instruments that I'm going to make music with and the musicians who I choose to, to play whatever instrument. So. You know, it's it's not really not very a complex thing. You know, if I if I have a a, a band in mind and I put it together, and um, you know, it's usually quite a long-lasting thing. I mean, uh, the, the latest incarnation, of course, we're, we're now a trio, and so you know that happened uh, in the middle of this year when Rocky Athos decided, uh, you know, he was he was going to you know work work on his own, and so. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, Greg Arzab on bass guitar, Jay Davenport on drums, and myself on everything else. So it's working out very well right now. Talking to John Mayhall here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, can you talk about, uh, did you use an upright bass in your... No. Never once? No. Never once? No. I, it, it wouldn't fit. So the first band you had had an electric bass player in it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't fit. Yeah, John McVie was the, was the first bass player. Right. <laughs> so um, let me ask you, uh, Dave Mason, when I talked to him a few months back, basically said that the British cats, like yourself, pretty much um, uh, heard the blues, uh, you know, repa- uh, basically played your version of it and then repackaged it and sold it back to the States. Can you talk about that? Do you do you believe that that's an accurate assessment? I mean, he was being a little well. It's it's, it's an accurate assessment of, of what happened in in the sixties. You know, it's like, it, it really has very little to do with what you know I, I've I've been doing because you know I started playing the blues you know ten fifteen years before that happened in sixty three. So um, you know, they're two two different aspects really. I, I didn't have a, a band together that I played publicly, but. You know, I was a devotee of, of, of jazz and blues and American music in general. So, you know, I would put uh, put, put a band together in, in art college and things like that. So, 
you know, I've, I've always been involved in music from the age of uh, 10 or 11 years old. Um, can you talk about the first sounds of jazz? Because I didn't even know Jimmy Jufri didn't play with a drummer. He, he had a drummerless quintet? Yeah, yeah, quartet. A quartet. So tell me some of the, where were you getting, were you just getting it through records or was there a... Uh, yeah, you know, if, you, if you're a record collector, I think it applies to anybody who collects records. You know, you, you delve into the kind of music you like and you build your collection uh, accordingly. Well, I understand that, but I'm saying, were you, were you getting off on bebop? I mean, were you were Dizzy Gillespie? I want to well, remember. before, no, no, you, you, you know, you're, you're still talking way later. I'm talking about the, the 40s, you know. You're in you're the 40s. About, you're in the 40s. Yeah, that's when I started, you know, collecting records. 78s, LPs weren't invented then, but, you know, so. <laughs> so we're talking about the four brothers, Woody Herman. Can we talk? I'm, I'm producing a documentary on Stan Getz. I would love, oh, yeah. I'd yeah. love you to talk about that big band 40s era that Mayhall got, got, in, got, got mar was marinating in. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a very big subject if you want to cover the history of you jazz. Should, I because... mean, that's what my show's about, man. This isn't fluff. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm, um, I'm, look, I've, been I've been waiting to talk to you for months, man. I guess you have. I guess all these questions lined up. Uh, they're they're a little a little bewildering and overwhelming because of the scope of the question. Well, I mean, listen. Uh, how many? I mean, do I really want to talk to John Mayall about Eric Clapton? I can give a exactly, shit about that. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about the real yeah. deal. You know, when I first started collecting records, it was you know as an offshoot of my father's jazz record collection. So. You know, I, I grew up listening to this kind of music all my life. So um, his collection was was more big bands, and uh, because he played a little guitar, you know, he had a lot of uh, focus on people like Eddie Lang and, and Lonnie Johnson and uh, people like that, the Mills Brothers. So that was my early introduction to to music, and um, and then I went from there. When I discovered Boogie Woogie, it was. Uh, uh, you know, Albert Hammonds, Pete Johnson, Cripple Clarence Loft, and all those guys, and uh, Jimmy Yancey, those were, were my uh, influences and where I sparked off on my own. So uh, we didn't have a piano, so I used to have to go to other people's houses and kind of torture them while I kind of worked <laughs> out the rudiments of that, you know. So, <laughs> so it was a hard slog, and there weren't very many people... Uh, interested in listening to it because it was a bit archaic and like I say I was self-taught so um, it was just it's one of those things you know that uh, developed out of my own um, interest in music I was playing for myself really until the 60s happened and uh, and uh, Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis made that kind of music palatable to a large audience and that kicked the whole thing off uh, as to a layperson, a non-musician, and a journalist like myself, how did they? How did they stretch it to make it more palatable to a uh, more pop or a larger audience? Well, it wasn't a pop audience. It was a, you know, it was a, all the clubs in England were playing uh, New Orleans trad tra jazz for ten years. You know, Humphrey Littleton, Chris Barber, and uh, Kenny Ball, and people like that. That was what was the most popular kind of music. And then when that had a 10-years uh, run, Alexis and, Cork and Cyril Davis came out of that, uh, out of that clique and, and, you know, started putting the Blues Incorporated together. So that's how, how that all sparked off. And, of course, it was a new generation, so they were attracted to this kind of music and uh, came from all different parts in the country, and that included myself coming from Manchester.
I'm curious, talking to John Mayall here. I'm just wondering about uh, the live setting. I mean, you were hearing this stuff on 78s. Maybe you had a stacker up top of your head like Ernie Watts did going to sleep at night. Um, you know, I mean, can you talk about a seminal? I mean, I didn't realize you were born in in 1933. Is that accurate? That's right, yes. Okay, so you were born – you are, I mean – but I mean, you were—you've been a bit fearless. But I mean, can you talk about a seminal live experience of seeing some of this jazz in England, or if there was even a local uh, big band that uh, that mirrored that? That really, uh, really—it was all. You know, England's a very small country, so and anybody, any band. I mean, London was the headquarters, really. It was all the bands we used to travel in their vans up and down the country. So it was that kind of—it was just a. Easily spread, you know. So um, it wasn't. It was. It was mainly in the clubs, I would think, and there wasn't all that much uh, activity in in radio. Uh, but it was definitely a, a very thriving, thriving club industry all over the country, from top to bottom. So you know, it, it grew out of it grew out of that, I suppose. Um, can you talk about a? a some cats that you saw live that really sort of blew you away? Um, well, you know, I caught all the, the, the jazz at the Philharmonic uh, concerts that came over. So, I mean, I was exposed to, um, you know, meeting Art Blakey and, and I, the, the countless, countless jazz, Junior Mance, um, Duke Ellington, uh, Louis Armstrong, all those guys. You know, I met all those guys when they came over to to England to do their tours. This is see. This is now we're getting somewhere with John Mayall because uh, you know, I mean, Art Blakey's job. I was born in 1978. Blakey's job was to uh, wash away the dust of everyday life when he would play for Cats. And can you just talk, John? I mean, very, very candidly, can you because. You know, we live in an academic musical environment today. I don't know what it's like overseas, but you're in L.A. right now. I don't believe that's where I live. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't really believe that that the vocabulary within any genre of music can grow within the four walls of academia. And I wanted to talk to you because when you're putting cats like I've interviewed Larry Taylor twice. I've interviewed Ernie Watts. I've interviewed Charlie Owens. Rest in peace. I never got to Blue Mitchell. But you know what? When I see your bands. To me, it's a bunch of street scholars. It's cats that never learned, throw away the, the books, never had books. There were no jazz curriculums. It was an oral tradition, and you burned on the bandstand. You tell me about our well, talk about that. Well, that's that's the way it always has been. You know? uh, not not to, not in today's maybe on maybe in your band, but there's a stagnation amongst all musics, and it has a lot to do with the fact that cats are now, if you can afford it. You pay thirty grand to go to school so you can learn some sort of theory, or you can learn improvisation. John Mayall didn't learn improvisation in the four walls of a classroom. No, no. I, well, I never learned to read or write music anyway. So, <laughs> I saw, saw whatever. I just muscle along with what what uh, limited techniques I have. You know, I use it to the best, best, most best of my ability. But can you talk about the idea of seeing Art Blakey play live on the? I mean, just as for younger generations and 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 cats like that, um, what was it that stood out to you? Well, you know, I'd collected their records for years. You know, when they get an opportunity to see them live, and it's uh, just uh, a great experience. You know, 
So, you know, people like Horace Silver and uh, Wes Montgomery, uh, I don't know, the list is pretty endless. They all came over to, to London and, and, and did their, did their club, club tours and, and all, all over Europe, you know. So. You still there? Yeah. Okay. No, well, I guess what I'm getting at is that even I talked to Larry Taylor, the great bass player, uh, and that track we let in on, and we're going to get to in a minute because you don't realize this, but uh, it's been my theme uh, song um, for quite some time. I think on Crusade Records, which was uh, an al- a label that you started, I believe. Um, but uh, the jazz was right alongside the blues in the 1950s. And um, well, yeah, well, it always has been. You know, you, you can't, you can't, you can't separate the blues from jazz because. Jazz grew out of the blues and, and and work songs and things like that. It's a, it's an African American um, form of music, you know. So it all came came out of out of one source. How do you know it was an African Amer- African source? Well, you just read any history book of, of jazz, you know, spirituals and. Uh, Work songs, prison songs—you know—it's all—it all starts somewhere. The, 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 then recorded music came in, so nobody really knows what what the the scene or the, what kind of music was before recorded music. But it's a long tradition; mm-hmm. you know, it goes back a, a couple of centuries. When you would see cats like uh, Junior Mance, uh, Blakey, uh, Horace Silver, uh, it seemed—I mean, this was. This was part of the Norman Grand's contingent, uh, Jazz at the Philharmonic. I didn't know Blakey was part of that group. Well, they, that that was that was some of some shows were were dealt with by Norman Grants, but you know, promote, uh, promoters in England they would, they would get American jazz stars and do them in, independently. You know, so there was plenty plenty going on. Can you, uh, John? Can you talk a little bit about uh, the the first band you were in where you felt like your ears really grew the most? I, I, I you know, I've, I've, every band that I've put together, I've enjoyed playing and I've learned something from it, you know, so. Um, no, but I asked you when, con- the first time that your ears grew the most, when they, when someone stretched you out and you started to hear things in the music in a specific time in your career. Well, I don't know. I've always you know, I've never worked for another in another person's band, so I don't don't really know how to answer that. You know, I've just progressed in my own way to play the music as, as I feel. Can you talk about uh, uh, um, how you met Blue Mitchell? Well, I I I, I wanted to put a, a a jazz blues fusion thing together and. Uh, Living in England, you could you could perhaps find a trumpet player who played like Blue Mitchell, you know, to have in your band. But of course, coming to America then and moving here, then you had access to the real thing, so you didn't you didn't have to find somebody who sounded like someone. You could just give them a call and see if they were interested. So that's how Blue came into the into the picture. So you know, same with Red Holloway and and Freddie Robinson, they all. And Victor Gaskin, and you know, just I, I could, I could, you know, get their phone numbers and ask them if they wanted the gig. So, 
that's how, it's, how it all came about, and that's how it always is. Well, I mean, don't be so modest, man. I mean, that there was no more of a burning band. I mean, you're putting together Keith Hartley with a with a horn section. I guess can you just talk? I mean, we just talked about jazz came out of the blues, but then you're talking about coming to the states and saying I want to do a jazz blues fusion, which was actually one of your albums along with movie. Yeah. What what is that? Can you break? Can you expand on that for this worldwide audience? What I mean, because you just said that jazz came out of it. So when you're talking about jazz blues, I just want to I just want you to riff on that. Well, it's just a free form. You know, my band was just a free form thing. There were very little charts or anything like that because we didn't need them. So, you know, it was a it was a, a great a great blowing experience. You know, so we had a lot of fun. That's all you're going to give me. Well, I, I don't know how what else to say. You know, um, you know, I, I I put a band together so that we can explore the explore each other's music and enjoy ourselves and and make the audience a part of that so that's what i've always done right but you took cats that were prolific studio musicians i mean blue mitchell ernie watts those guys could read fly papers so can you can you put me inside those sessions i mean this is to me is incredibly there's nothing going on like this like in today's world john nothing well i you know it's up to up some to band leaders to choose a musician you want to work with so, um, like you say, there aren't many people who do that, you know. So, I guess um, <laughs> I guess I might be the only one. I'm not sure. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, why ultimately did you decide to come uh, to the United States? And can you talk about your experience uh, coming over here as an immigrant and who really um, took care of you? Uh, obviously, we, we're having. Uh, very uh, different issues today as it relates to immigration in this country. Europe is having its own problems. But I'd just like you to talk about who took you under your wing when you first moved uh, to the States. Um, I can't really remember. You know, I came came over in uh, the beginning of 68 to, to do our first um, American tour, such as it was. It was two weeks in, in New York at the Cafe Agogo, uh, one night in Detroit, and... Uh, a week at the Whiskey Agogo in Los Angeles, and a couple of weekends at the, in the Fillmore in San Francisco. So that was my first introduction to the states, and I uh, c- could tell instantly that it was a way of life that uh, was more suited to what I wanted out of life. So, uh, you know, having been brought up on American movies, American music, American culture, you know, I just recognized that it was the place for home for me. So within the year. I moved out here, and I've been here ever since. Were you surprised at the lack of appreciation for African-American music in the States? No, not really, because you got the color bar here. And, you know, you had separate separate societies. Black and white did not mix. You know, so, you know, it's part of, the, part of America's heritage that, uh, you know, fortunately it's, it's, it's changed now, so... Um, you know, we're not living in those dark days of the uh, uh, last century and the early part of this cent- of last century, the 1900, uh, 20th century. Well, I'm so when you are we talking about when you came over here? We're talking about Black America was different from White America. They're two separate societies, so they didn't mix. So that when the American jazz and blues people came over to uh, to do a tour from 1920s onwards. You know, they were totally revered. They were treated like gods over in Europe because they'd followed their 
music through records and uh, and the color bar didn't exist so you know they've they have they found a very warm welcome and they, that's helped to to spread the spread the, the opportunity for us to hear these people who were legends to us to to you know interact with them and uh, see them live so you know, that was, that was a great thing. But there's no way that you knew that these guys weren't treated like heroes when you were still living. I'm just, I guess all I'm saying is Brian Auger came over here uh, and uh, he was going to do a gig with Herbie Hancock. And he went in because one night in New York, uh, McCoy Tyner was playing and he walked in and there were about 15 people there. And he was shocked because McCoy was a is a was a hero. So and I look at the I, I mean, on the back of those albums, I'm, I'm talking about when you came here to to when you came to live here in the late 60s, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, Whiskey A Go-Go wasn't a black bar. It was mixed. So, I mean, I mean, it wasn't just two separate societies at that time. Am I right, right or wrong? No, we, I'm, I'm talking about earlier than that. Exactly. What are you the, talking? So, what yeah. are you talking about? The, the 20s and 30s and 40s and the 50s, you know. So, that's when, you know, the black musicians would travel around in their bus and there were cities where they couldn't stay stay the night because the hotels would, would bar them from, uh, you know, from uh, take catering to black people. You know, it's, it's all part of America's uh, history and uh, it's, it's not a very nice one, but it's, it's, the, it's the facts, you know. And they didn't have that when they came over to, to play in, in Europe. So, you know, I didn't want else to tell you about that. No, I, I want common knowledge. <laughs> well, it may be common knowledge uh, to you, man, but for, you know, my show is based on, uh, you know, it, it's about the lineage of music and, and uh, whether you know it or not, there's a huge dumbing down going on and uh, within the world. So I think it's important. You you live through it. So, I mean, the the, the idea here is that whether it's, you know, whether it's Albert King or it's Bobby Blue Bland or it's B.B. King, what you're saying is in the in the in the late 40s and early 50s, when 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 John Mayall was going to the clubs, uh, there was no segregation for black. I mean, black black musicians. No, I, the segregation and, and the, the color situation was totally unknown my whole life in, in England and the same through Europe. There's no no distinction. People are people, and you know they're taken at face value, regardless what color they were. It's only in America that has had has the you know the, the racial prejudice history. So, you know, so that's that's the difference. And and I, I guess that was what I was talking about is putting together a mixed race band. Uh, Ernie Watts. Well, no the, no problem in Europe. No no no. When you came here and put together jazz blues fusion. I would like you to talk about the reception that maybe the hardship that you might have been pushing up against because that was still uh, no hardship whatsoever. No, no, that was that was the early seventies, you know. So things had changed radically by then. Can you point to a, uh, was there a turning point in your mind? Because you probably had when was your first tour in the in the United States? January '68. And can you put a finger on? Do you believe that the that the appreciation of the of cats like yourself and the quote unquote British invasion helped uh, sort of mend some of that segregation that was going on? Because you said it was it was totally well, it drew it drew young white people's attention to uh, the fact that in their own on their, on their own doorstep they had the originators of this music, so they were the source 
that had inspired all the, the the British and European groups that came over to do their rock and roll blues uh, shows, you know. So, so the Stones and uh, Clapton, Blind Faith, Jimi Hendrix, in reverse order, but the Animals, you know, all those all of those British groups came over to America and playing American music. So it turned on a lot of people to what they had on their own doorstep. Maybe not even the maybe the fact also that they not only played American music, but they played with the legendary characters, right? I mean, they played with Jimmy Witherspoon and they played with the... Yeah, yeah. Know, so you actually could see like a, a camaraderie there that, that would not necessarily exist amongst the the American, uh, the white American. Yeah, and the black. I, I don't know. It's such a massive subject and, you know, I really can't pinpoint that you could you could talk for days on that if you had a mind to <laughs> but you know it's it, it's it's such a vast subject how uh can i ask you about um the you seem that you were engrossed with american culture uh over there you're not unlike john mclaughlin uh and uh and cats that have interviewed like mason and uh brian auger and and you know i'm just curious about uh if you could talk a little bit about um, the vibe uh, following World War II, um, where you were, uh, if there were, which kind of beat poet, poets you were getting off on, and, and who were your, who were the inspirations for you from a, a, a poet or writer point of view? Because from what I can gather, there, most, there wasn't much of that going. In fact, if you were blue collar in England, you could not write. You could only write if you were from royalty. So I was just curious about who are you getting off on from a... I have no idea what what you mean by it is that... Um, um, I, I'm, I'm stumped. Well, okay, <laughs> so... Know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my experience. You know, it's, I've grown up in a society where culture was taken on its own terms, whatever it was. So there's people who like jazz, some people like... I've never been into poetry myself, so that's totally outside of my sphere. But, you know, uh, music and movies, that's been my interest. Oh, right on. No, that's cool. Um, that, I, I, uh, what, what I'd like you to talk about a little bit, and you can even put this into, into, contempor into your own contemporary bands, uh, can you just talk to uh, uh, people about what you consider to be the... Uh, uh, the most important qualities of leadership and why on the bandstand? I don't know. I think, I think you have to be kind of, it's going to be, you get to be born to that. I think to be a, a band leader. Um, a lot of people are great musicians, but they couldn't lead a band. So I don't know, but the, the people who are, you know, band leaders may not be, uh, known so much for their musicianship perhaps, but, you know, um, for me, it's always been a natural that I would pick musicians who would reflect what I was trying to say through music. Can you give an example of putting together a band and, and how you... Well, work? any band that I've ever had, that's exactly what it is, you know. So if I, if I have a certain sound in my head and, and, and I, look, I like a certain musician and like the way he plays and would, would be interested in playing, I make him an offer. And uh, if he's interested, then he joins the band. But once you're on the bandstand, I mean, Miles used to turn his back on the audience in some ways. Uh, for a long time, Coltrane would come up to him and say, what do you want me to play? And Miles would just turn his back on him, and eventually Train would figure out, actually, he wanted me to be myself. And I think that just we live in a very verbose time. You admit you're not a big 
uh, reader, uh, you know, and we live in a time where people hang on words. And I just like you to talk about nonverbal communication on the bandstand and how that. Well, uh, for me, it's the total opposite of Miles Davis. You know, um, you know, I, I, I like to make the audience a part of it. That's your first and foremost job to make them feel a part of what you're doing. So, um, you know, every show I do is a different different set list every night, and. Uh, and to make make sure you're communicating with the audience, make sure they're having a good time, and uh, out of that you 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 play your heart out and create music. Right. So how are you? How is that different from Miles Davis? Well, the, you've just told me Miles Davis wasn't interested in talking to the audience or or facing them or whatever. You know, the opposite of what I do. I make the audience feel a part of it. Right. Well, no, I mean, the that's the entertainer component to it. I'm talking about how you allow, how you give people, people that you bring into your band, the creative freedom to express themselves. I just can't explain it. You know, if, you're, if, if you choose someone, it's because you like the way he plays and you create an environment where he can stretch out and, uh, and explore his own potential. That's it in a nutshell. No matter what the instrument. Um, do you who? How did you meet Shaky Jake Harris? I can't really remember. Um, because your piano playing on that track that we let in with is hypnotic. I mean, I it's one. I yeah. da I danced my younger daughter to that. Ron Selico, your boy Freddie Robinson. I mean, all I'm saying is that was a crusade. I mean, how did you come up with the concept of that label, and then? I mean, you got to give me something with Shaky Jake. The guy was a total scrap iron, you know, fly by the seat of your pants dude, but Mayall's playing piano on that. Yeah, I don't know. He, he, was, he wasn't getting a record deal at the time, as far as I can remember, and you know, it was somebody I wanted to, to record on on a label of my own, which didn't really work out very well. It only had two two releases on the Crusade label, but it was an opportunity for me to you know, record somebody else in the studio. And I gathered together musicians who I thought would be helpful towards it. And, uh, you know, Larry, Larry Taylor came came along on that one and and uh, Freddie Robinson and, you know, all these, these guys, uh, Blue Mitchell. So, you know, there were people that I knew that I thought would enhance some, uh, in, uh, in the artist's uh, work. Did you... Uh... There's some great uh, in the, on the vinyl pictures. Blue Mitchell albums. Uh, he called you in to do stuff with him on harmonica. What, what, yeah, yeah. Was well, that... we were friends, you know. So we're friends and work had a working relationship, and you know we we have fun. Did you? I mean, was it a trip for you to? Uh, I mean, did you get a chance to see uh, Blue uh, um, in overseas before you actually called him up to be in your band? Yeah, I'd, I'd seen seen him with Horace Silver, you know, in the, the Horace Silver days. Can you talk about what Horace and those guys were doing, especially with the blues? Well, Horace Silver was always, you know, very well rooted in the blues. So, um, you know, he was always one of my great favorites. Right. Um, let me just ask you before I let you go here. Um, can you talk about a specific time in your career uh, where you uh, were fighting it? Could be on the bandstand or just in your life. Uh, how you overcame the adversity, how it made you stronger? 
Uh, well, I, quite frankly, I've never had any adversity. You know, I've, I've always gone my own way, and people have accepted what I do and, and enjoyed it. And I certainly enjoyed every every facet of, uh, of my whole career. No, I've never had any hard times. So you're not human? Well, I... I mean that's ridiculous, I, man. I've talked to I've talked to everyone from Bill Cosby. You're talking you're talking about music. You know, I'm, I'm talking, talking no, about I'm talking acceptance. about I'm, I'm talking about over. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just saying, stretch it out. I mean, you you, you talk about overcoming adversity. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> there are cats. Well, everybody. I, I don't know how to answer. You know, everybody has their road to, to choose in life, and you you do the best you can with with any with your career or with whatever. So where are you going now on uh, what's what's the schedule for you uh, for the rest of this year? Well, we've 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 just finished the the, the, the whole of the East Coast and the South, so we we we've just just done uh, 30, 32 shows in a row there, so that's all done, and then we've got two weeks off, and then we start in Seattle in a couple of weeks, and we work our way down the West Coast, so that's and then we when we finish that. All the dates are on the website, johnmail.com, so just check those out. And then we finish off in Hawaii, so that will be the, the, the last shows of the year as far as I know. Um, I, I always ask the cats this, too, because we're living through a, a pretty callous time. Uh, can you talk to the audience about your concept of love? Not really. Why? Well, love is a, is a great thing, isn't it? So, yeah, it's and it's not. Yes. If you're lucky enough to, to to love someone or have people love you, it's a great feeling. So that's all that can be said about that. Well, how, how do you how, how do you give love to the world? I, I it's too general a thing. I I make music. It obviously makes people happy. Well, we just heard from uh, John Mayle. I wanted to thank you so much for truncating this. And, uh, you know, if you ever have a chance to, uh, you want to ex extrapolate on some of this stuff, uh, that would be great. Um, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's, it's a little difficult. Then you, you try and put, you know, talk about music in, in technical terms or whatever. But, uh, you know, a musician plays the way he feels. And that's what I've always been allowed to do. And, uh, fortunately, I've had that freedom to do it. Do you still stay in touch with any of the, like Mark Almond or Keith Hartley? Do you, do you stay in touch with any of those cats? Well, they're all dead. They're all dead. Yeah, Keith, Keith Keith's dead, and uh, Johnny Almond's uh, dead. Steve Thompson's dead. Uh, Blue Mitchell's dead. Red Holloway's dead. Freddie Robinson. And they're all. They're all. You know, they they moved on. <laughs> what about Hextall? No, what about Hextall and Heisman? Yeah, well, John Heisman's still still uh, still working with Coliseum, I think, and Dick Dick's dead. Um, he died a couple of years ago. But you know, just um, just look at look at uh, Wikipedia; it'll tell you everything about uh, who's on the scene and who isn't. But uh, well, I, you know, I mean, listen, I, my my. <laughs> I've interviewed 500 dudes from your generation. I'm not interested in looking up on Wikipedia. And I, you know, in the future, man, if you want to come back and you feel like extrapolating, I just think that it's important for, for younger people to hear from, from, from people in the past who can connect the lineage of the music and the esoteric parts of it 
Um, yeah, and, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, well, I mean it's 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 vital. And well, I've done the best. I've done the best I can. Put it that way. <laughs> well, listen. I mean, if that's the case, then I'm very proud. But I can just tell you, you know, you've had, um, like I said, your your piano solo with Shaky Jake and. You know, Larry Taylor didn't even remember that. Uh, but I just think that you guys, it was an oral tradition. It was a, uh, there was a street scholar mentality, uh, you know. And, uh, I mean, I didn't even get into even asking you about uh, the metaphysical or, or your experiences on psychedelics. So, um, I would really love to. No idea what that would be. <laughs> no no LSD? No LSD for you ever? No, of course not. No drugs at all. I never smoked a joint even. Well, that is, that says a lot, and that's a good thing, and that because I like yeah. that because they're you know the 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 cats like uh, it's important to to be able to uh, transcend on the bandstand uh, you know without uh, without substances. So uh, and Stan Getz, who I'm doing this documentary on, uh, um, did you ever get to see Stan play? By the way, yeah, in concerts, I never met him personally, but I, you know, heard him heard him play live, yeah. What what stood out to you about him? Well, he's just a, one of those individuals that has a tone all his own, and, you know, he's an individual. So it doesn't sound... Nobody else sounds like him, and uh, and that's the mark of a great musician when nobody nobody can... When he's instantly recognizable. Exactly. I was just... Oh, also, there you yeah. are. No, well, I was going to say that uh, he was also on the on the road at, in ninth grade with Jack Teagarden. When were you actually first on the road for the record? 60, 61, 62. And which, in which band? Um, whatever band they put together. It was at first with Davy Graham on guitar, just the two of us, and then it went on to John McVie, Huey Flint, and uh, Bernie Watson. And all the, this, every, all the, it's all on our website. Sure, but I just want to be clear, you've never, you've never been in a company as before? No, no, never. No, no. interesting. All right, my man. Listen, much love to you, John. Thank you for all your contributions. And uh, okay, you know, keep burning. Well, very good. Keep burning, brother. I certainly will. Cheers. All right, later then. on. Bye. 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 Just heard from John Mayall, great multi instrumentalist. Uh, still, still cranking, still doing the touring circuit, and uh, asked him some pretty deep questions today. But uh, he was only willing to partake so far. He did the best he could. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a couple of uh, deep, deep cats, Zane Kesey and Anders Osborne. Uh, and now we will uh, rejoin the Jim Parisi show. I'm trying to think of what all that cost. It, you know, back, you have to understand, in those days. Back then, that at, was $2,000, right? Instead of like no, 50. No, it wasn't. First of all, we did it at the Celebrity Club in Providence. You probably never heard of this, did you? You missed the no, Celebrity Club. No, no. It was the first 